This episode of Systematic is brought to you exclusively and without commercial interruption by Symbolicons. There's more to Symbolic icons than just the standard emoji set. And Symbolicons gives you a clean, polished, professional, usable set of icons that you can present to your audience, no matter how large or small. You can get 40% off of your choice of icon set bundles by going to Symbolicons.com and using the offer code ESN1. You already know Jory's work. If you're a fan of Systematic, he designed the iconic typeface that has lived with the show throughout its 137-episode life. Within the week, you'll be able to order a systematic shirt of your very own that will deliver in time for WWDC 2015. Thanks for listening, thanks to Symbolicons, and enjoy this very special episode of Systematic. Hi, I'm Brett Terpstra, and this is Systematic on ESN. My guest this week is Molly Holschlag, an author, teacher, and open web evangelist. If you're involved or even on the periphery of web development, you may know her as Molly.com. She's been working on the web since before there was a web. And if you're listening to this podcast, her work has affected your life in one way or another. I'm very excited to have you here, Molly. Hey, Brett. I'm very excited to be here. Thank you for the opportunity. I got into web web development in the early days of the web, but for 10 years, I kind of, it was just something I knew how to do. And then the first book I ever bought on the topic of web development was Transcending CSS, which you wrote with, I think, Andy Clark. Yeah, that's already well into the... Yeah, that's 10 years into my web development. Yeah, I was going to say that's well into the career track. And it was actually the last book with which I was involved after that's like the 35th or 36th or something like that. Yeah. Um, so that was the end of my book career. That's very interesting. So you came in at, at a great time. I think a more evolved time. It was, uh, say, it was a Renaissance time. Yes. Very good word for it. At that time, there was definitely this incredibly rich Renaissance. Um, but let's step back a moment. Let me ask you a question, Brett. What, when you say you started your web development work in the early days of the web, what does that mean to you? Well, I think it was about time, time, years always fail me, but it was around 9091 when I was using Gopher and, and I was running a BBS and I was, you know, I was enjoying the potential of, of network communication, but everything was like FidoNet backbone. And then, uh, then I discovered the early, you know, hyperlink documents that were coming out and I learned HTML and. I built in high school. I, I built websites for uh, for local companies and things, and this would be like between ninety two and ninety six, and uh, and I just I, I understood it and I taught myself everything I needed to know by dissecting what I found, and you know it was all inline CSS and very little <laughs> JavaScript that actually worked. It was back in the days of DHTML, uh, um, and then it's- I. Yeah, D D HTML, right? Yeah. Is what you're saying? Yep. Yes, of course. Which which really is, uh, ironically, uh, if we look at it very in very pure terms, was the precursor for what we know today as HTML5. Right. People can shoot me for that if they want to, <laughs> but I can break it down technically and explain why I said that. <laughs> but yeah, that was an interesting time. Definitely very innovative. So you kind of entered in the in the early text but almost graphic phase right and then went into the graphic phase well and then i went to college and 
uh, went to an art school and studied what they called interactive multimedia, right. which was very heavy on flash and director. And, of course. And okay. Not, so that you know, was and I studied US. design. Right. But then when I got out of college, I ended up just kind of it, the web building websites kept like nudging into my career as like a graphic designer. And eventually I just decided <laughs> I preferred web development to just straight like uh, uh, print design. Right. And that was when I really started to see the the renaissance that was happening, this idea of, you know, separating style and function and and the advancements in CSS. CSS Zen was huge for me. Right. I had so, so much fun so with Dave that. Shea's the Zen Garden and then of course uh uh the CSS Zen Garden online. Yeah. And then of course he and I co authored the book, uh The Zen of CSS Design. Which to me is probably the one of the most incredible uh, journeys I've ever been on in terms of a of an author, but also as a web developer because a lot of what we did in that book was to deconstruct and reconstruct through the eyes of the designer that did the initial design what exactly they did, and it was really uh, for me who is not I mean I have a strong sense of visual design and I'm educated in the principles of design, but I am no designer when it comes to actual applied design. I'm limited in my capabilities. Um, and it's interesting because I think this dovetails very much into something that, that you have said where uh, what we found in the web is that there is an opportunity for people and I think we struggle with this at a point in our education. We're given either, uh, we, we show um, a strength. Let's say we show a strength in science or math. And we're given that trajectory in school. We're, we're, not, we're not so much helped. The model, in, in, as it currently stands, in, at least in U.S. education, is that you, uh, you know, your, your, uh, your strengths are what are, uh, are what are worked on rather than your weaknesses, which to me is a little strange because you would think that you would keep on encouraging the strength and work more with the students' issues and challenges, right? But I think what happens in that process is we, we end up having a missing piece for many of us, not for everybody. And then when we get to something like the web, which is uniquely, uh, well, almost uniquely, I would say, very close to uniquely uh, hybrid in that regard, where it, it demands the artistry, if you will, uh, and the creativity of that designer uh, mind and the rigor of the technology uh, mind. And I think that that merging and that hybridization actually is something that we are not allowing to evolve quite naturally in humans. And so when we find that on our own, it sometimes causes a little bit of that disruption. And I think it did that very much for me early on in my career, where I had always been streamlined into the creative because I was musical because I sang, because I uh, had some trouble with math, especially when we got to multiplication. Uh, I was very frustrated. I cried. I asked for help. I was in a religious school. 
And my teacher basically sat down and told me, this was a woman, by the way, who sat down and told me, don't worry, honey, it's nothing you'll ever need. (laughs) 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 Which I knew, I mean, I was a child, but I knew innately something wasn't right about that. There was, you know, she was the authority, but something inside me was like, that doesn't sound right. You know, this is school. You're supposed to learn, you know, and I, my family has a major ethic of learning. You know, learning is everything. Um, knowledge is key, right? So, uh, it just didn't sit well with me, but I, at that time, didn't know how to fight against that and say, wait a minute, just sit with me, work through this little block. Who knows what'll happen, right? I didn't know how to say that. I didn't know how to articulate that. And of course, I'm older than you are. So I think, I hope that that's not happening. But again, this was in in a religious school. So I don't know. It's hard to say if it's still happening or not. But that's dis- gotten better. I hope so, because that discouragement is is so difficult. It's still, you know, it's still in our public school system here in the U.S., though. And I think that other nationalities listening will relate to this in some way too because it seems to be across the boards that people it's just easier to to work with a student and work on what looks to be their real strength so brett when you came when you came to the web it seems to me from what you said that you had that you know how you articulated i'm going to paraphrase it but there was almost like a sense of you said that it, it kept pushing you, that you kept getting pushed, right, into more technology. And despite the fact that you are, you identify design or did, correct? Yeah. So that's what I think. See, I but, think, um, but I grew up coding. You did. Like, I didn't grow up designing. Art school was a, a fallback for me because I was really bad at calculus. And I failed my first year of computer science. <laughs> so art school was just, it sounded easy. It turned out to be harder than calc. Oh, God. I had much, <laughs> a much harder time when it came right down to it in art school. Yeah. But, uh, but so I had this strong tech background combined with, you know, a design education. And wow. so it was, a, it was perfect for me. And this was the point where the web was becoming more than a novelty for people. Yeah. So you, you actually had the high, the advantage of being a hybrid a little earlier in life than I did. And I think that it still sounds though, as if there was that swing between the two or a desire at some point, you know, like you said, it's a fallback. It was what you, I mean, to me, that language alone says that was where your comfort zone was that, that if it's a fallback, you're going to fall into that, which you feel most comfortable with. Would would you agree? Yeah. To to be fair. I mean, it really didn't exist. Like the opportunity didn't exist. So as it became available and, and started nudging into my, you know, work life, Mm -hmm. it, yeah, it, it, it forced itself on me just like it did the entire world, I think. (laughs) <laughs> I think that's really the way it happened. I mean, I, the, the idea of the web forcing anything is is kind of silly because it's really inanimate. The web is obviously the manifestation of people. So <laughs> it's the people that are doing the forcing. But clearly, there does seem to be this incredible uh, shift in the entire world in the last 20 years of my life, which is part of the reason it's been so darned interesting. 
to well, so, be part of this industry because you're on the heartbeat of that edge, you know? Yeah. So, so let's, uh, what we're going to do here is break this into a series similar to the last John Roderick series, uh, hopefully with a less melancholy ending, although that was, <laughs> it was, it was amazing. Um, but we're going to start this episode with your story, like how this began for you, your 20 years. Like at what point did you, if you had to pinpoint where your career on the web, well, you know, as if you, if you define it as that, where did that start? It, it, you know, it's really evolutionary, I have to say. And it began, it began long before there was a web. I think it began in that moment when I began to sense that something was wrong with the way, the way math was being treated. Uh, math and science were sort of being uh, pushed away from me. And I am fundamentally a rebel. If you say I can't, the first thing I'm going to do <laughs> is exactly what you said I can't do, right? Yes. <laughs> so that's just my personality. Always has been and has gotten me into big trouble, but it's also helped me make great breakthroughs in my life. So I think I really, that's where the evolution began. I began to struggle for an identity. I kept keeping my creative things going. So I kept making music. And the more I made music, the more I realized, hey, I'm doing math here. I had Wait that same revelation. Wait a second. Right? <laughs> yeah, it's applied. Once I was able to reach a point where I could uh, you know, it's. A, I guess it, you, you know. You, I was in college, I guess, by that point, or just beginning college at that point, where, you know, I had matured enough where the brain came together too. My ability to, you know, put those things together, and I realized, wait a second, okay, this is an application versus a theory. They were teaching me theory. If I apply the knowledge, it makes so much more sense to me. Did okay? you think at that point that? It, you would have been better off if they had planted the seed of application while they were teaching theory? I would say um, <laughs> it's hard to look back and say, yeah, that would have been much better for me because maybe it wouldn't have been. Maybe that spark of rebellion is what, you know, led me on that path. But I would say, so for me, I would say, I don't know. But for the rest of education and how we teach people, I really do believe, yeah, we have got to bring that, uh, that awareness to education early on, especially when children are at their most sponge-like. You know, they're just capable of, of absorbing so much and, and understanding um, where the boundaries are in a way that adults, we don't really have that skill set. There's a skill set in, in that early pre, um, solidification of the, of the hard wiring of the personality that is very, very fascinating. And I think we really need to start in early education with a balanced and fair look at all human beings, not just, oh, this child is showing aptitude in music therefore they are a creative no that may not be true at all this child is showing aptitude in music they may be a true hybrid let's find out you know what they can do with math and science as well as well so then that person has a richer life and that person has richer choices as they grow and emerge as a person 
into what they do in the world and what, how they apply their skill sets. And I think that just, it creates a richer environment. And I see that. Look at, look at a person like yourself, Brett. I think, I think that would apply to somebody like you who got the benefit of a, of a more advanced, perhaps, education than I did and that you came to it earlier in your life. How would you say it affected you? I went to, my elementary years were spent at a school for the gifted and talented called Emerson in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Oh, uh, you're an Ann Arbor kid. Wow. Uh, Oh, yeah. Smarty pants. (laughs) And and my best friend, we we were both uh, the kids who even at the school for the gifted and talented, we got beat up on the playground. But <laughs> oh my god! He, Even there, there, there's still going to be bullies. Always, right? always. Yeah. Uh, um, there. This is fourth grade, and he's doing uh, second year algebra, and he mm-hmm. is teaching me mm-hmm. algebra on the mm-hmm. playground. And the way he would explain it to me was from the application point of view. Right. And algebra, I got excited because, I like, algebra. I had, I, you know, I'd go home and I had a PC Junior, and I'd, I'd work on Basic and Logo and see how algebra fit into algorithms. Mm. Calculus was never introduced to me that way, and I didn't latch on. And it's only been in like the last ten years that I've understood that I use calculus every day. Of course, and of course you do. If I had understood that, I would have been way more excited and applied myself to calculus. Yes. I think that makes a huge difference, the way that things are presented. I absolutely agree. And I do spend a lot of time in the, in the world of theory. Um, and that's part of the academic, I think, in me. Yet, if there hadn't been years and years of application, you know, going back to those early years and that discussion again, um, that's where I really set out to, uh, to figure it out and to apply. So, um, for me, uh, the application of, and the doing was where I too found, wow, these skills now, not only do I have them and do I possess them and do I notice them in the patterns of the music and the patterns of the way I think, uh, I'm extremely analytical and I have extraordinarily strong logic skills, but I do have problems with calculation. I always have. It's, it was, but see, that's, they didn't look deep enough is, is the thing that I'm saying. And that could have possibly been corrected. Who knows? Whatever. Nevertheless, I figured those things out about myself. And by doing that, I was able to then, I don't know, it was like a very wonderful, lucky, I don't know, one of those serendipitous moments in, in, a, in a person's evolution in life where as I was coming um, out, you know, I was coming out of uh, my bachelor's degree or some, somewhere in my bachelor's degree there where um, I was already on BBSs and working on uh, as a sysop on Genie, you know, using <laughs> CompuServe, Prodigy. Uh, and we should probably even go back and talk about what some of these things are because, you know, there are people in the audience that are young enough now to not even know the history of how the these networks um, and the internet at large sort of merged. And then, of course, you referred to Gopher and uh, and the various internet protocols that were available prior 
to the web protocol that's web protocols, the combined co protocol of TCP, uh, IP, and of course HTTP. So uh, by the time we got to those, you know, combined protocols for the web, um, you know, it was it was really <laughs> such an emergence and evolution of various communication technologies. There wasn't a lot of design. The emphasis was on information and the social world, but the technology was in the environment. In order to access it, you had to know how to work a command line, right? right? You had to know how to speak to a computer in more of a computer language than we do today when we point and click. <laughs> you know, it's a, it was a very different access. If, if, sixth graders, if sixth graders using Facebook on their mobile phone knew <laughs> that at that age, I was using the AS400 at the college <laughs> to explore Gopher and FTP sites from the command line. Right. It, they would, I, 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 there's an I entire... There's an entire episode's worth of conversation to be had about what it's like to grow up during the dawn of a technology. It, and it's, it is an amazing thing. And I think that's really where this conversation is uh, at this point in, in what we're doing, Brett, because that's really, I think, I, I didn't know it. I, I, I honestly can tell you. Okay, so as I was saying, it was an evolution. And I think it did start back in that self-awareness that I did have this very strong interest in that other side, quote unquote, of my mind or brain or whatever, um, but that I was more holistic, that I had a, a skill set that that ran from the visual to the, to the, you know, so the visual, creative, artistic, mathematical, analytical, logical, human, you know, just much more holistic, much more what we call a hybrid, but I don't know that it's really a hybrid. I think it's really what most people are, but they're not necessarily given the opportunity to be come because of the way they're educated or the social environments in which they uh, they grow. So I think that, I think that from my perspective, I was very, it was sort of like everything lined up in a serendipitous fashion because no one could have, <laughs> no one could have written this, you know, truth is in fact, stranger than fiction when it comes right down to it. You know, there was no, there was no, uh, such thing as a web designer. There was no such thing as the web, which is kind of, why your intro about me was that I was on the web before the web, because in a, in a sense, when you were doing uh, gopher and looking at resources of that nature, uh, that was very close to where the web was. So there was another, I don't know if you remember waste, the wide area information service, right? I don't, that, actually. Yeah. That was really, it, it was at one point in the internet protocols, a split between that technology, which was very similar, you know, in a sense, we were already getting to the text-based hyperlink. But again, you know, to use your analogy, if we took a kid who's on Facebook or Instagram or twi Twitter and, you know, using these interfaces to communicate with their friends, if we took them back to that environment, they would not know how to function. <laughs> okay. It, it, they wouldn't, they just wouldn't. This is not, 
you know, it's not a judgment. It's just a fact. It's a compl- unless they had the the skill set and they were educated in that background, they're not going to know. Well, and they've never seen a low quality JPEG rendered in X on uh, 800 by <laughs> 600 terminal. Yeah, I remember before there were even <laughs> JPEGs. <laughs> and, you know, the argument between GIF and JIF is still going on. <laughs> I've accepted that it's uh, JIF. No, I've, wait, no, I've accepted that it's GIF. It's even GIF. Though, even though, yes, and I, I know that <laughs> even, even the creator of the format says GIF. Right. But in common vernacular, you know, if you, if you, if you say the acronym... Graphic interchange format. It's a hard G it's at hard the beginning, G. so I just I, I I let it go. I I, I know it's. It, I just I think I started using them interchangeably at one time, and it was like you know what, screw it. I'm just gonna keep doing that. Well, I for ten years it was it had to be GIF, and I would correct <laughs> people, and I gave up. So you know that's even funnier because it it brings us to an uh, the next layer actually of of what happened. So here we were in, you know, this text-based world and communicating in this environment that demanded a certain, you know, while, while informational and somewhat social in, in its nature, it was not, it, it, it was not, um, you know, it was not broadly accessible by the vast majority of humans. Not at all. So it had not really come to the desktop yet. Uh, and this would be early or, you know, late 80s, early 90s time. And then by the time 93 and the end of 93 and early 94 rolled around and we began to see the GUI, the you know Mosaic just celebrated an anniversary, of course, um, a couple days ago. Uh, and that was the first public browser uh, to, to come out. Obviously, there had been other GUI browsers, which people aren't aware of. Um, but there was one out of Stanford. There were, there were a few of them being worked on by various people who were involved in the web, uh, mostly physicists, obviously, who had been early on uh, related to Tim Berners-Lee and CERN. And so they were developing different graphic user interfaces. And so Mosaic came out, and at that point, within a few short months, really, we saw the emergence of uh, of more graphic components. And then of course, as the year, you know, progressed 94, 95, by that point, we began to really see the influx of graphic components and in a pretty darned ugly way. (laughs) You know, I don't know if you remember all the, the it was stunning at the time, (laughs) the the eggs, the eggs, the skulls and the, (laughs) Uh, the, 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 what became angel fire aesthetic. Oh my goodness gracious. (laughs) Yes, that was, and you know, what was really interesting about that though, and I'm really sorry that they, I think that's all taken down now, right? I, I'm really sorry that they did that because there there are archives of like the GeoCities pages. Yeah. I hope that there are, because I know that, I know that, uh, there's something that should be kept in my mind about about all of that. It was an incredible time of of ridiculous like let's just throw every bit of spaghetti on the wall and see what you know, see what sticks. And we needed to do that. There I mean we needed to play. It was necessary, I believe. Don't you? Absolutely. You- I, this everything we have today is the result of of tinkering and play. 
I agree. I absolutely agree. And so um, when people say, oh, I wish we could have just kept it on the straight and narrow and done this, it's like, no, you know, things evolve in this way for a reason sometimes. And when you look back, really, some of the most wrong and some of the most right things came out of the experimentation, especially with JavaScript and the emergence of what you referred to earlier on is what we called DHTML, which for those listeners who aren't familiar, that was something called dynamic HTML, which is not a language in and of itself, but a combination of CSS, HTML, the DOM, and JavaScript to create interactive uh, elements on within the web browser. So that is why it's, that's why I say it's really HTML5, because the description is, is uh, to the common person, not in the W3C or not in the what working group, to the common person on the street, that's what HTML5 really is. It's the, it's the coming together of exactly those components to build interactive uh, websites and applications. So with the emergence of that, of, of that graphic component, I think that's when the designers really got a taste. And of course, the entry of tables, the grid system, right? Where finally there was, you know, there was some way, because CSS at that point was, while it was evolving in, in the W3C, believe it or not, CSS and the W3C were created at, at approximately the same exact time. So 1994, we had the W3C coming into play, and in 1994, the CSS working group began. So you have that working group doing work, but we had browser implementation problems. And that's where I think the renaissance that you referred to earlier really, really, uh, you know, ultimately took us from these early days of the text and weird graphic and the use of tables because it was the only grid system that designers had and it made sense for the designer. And again, I don't get angry at it, except that for those sites that remain that way or people who continue to do that, they're, they're really causing accessibility and other issues. We have had to mature beyond those bad habits, I think. But we have now the technology to do that. And, well, and that's one of the unique aspects, you know, when you talked about the, the web being a unique technology, or, or I suppose a unique <laughs> event in history, is that it, uh, like with a, with a print design, you know, dating back to the 1800s, you, you didn't have to update it. You couldn't update it. It, right. it, it was set through history. And so with it the was web, a linear, linear process. Right. And, and the web is constantly shifting and requires updating as new technologies are available and as accessibility standards expand, et cetera. Absolutely. It, we have to look at it as iterative and even beyond that. Um, so, you know, we'll, we'll talk about this, uh, I, I think, a little later on when we get past some of uh, discussing some of the arc on the way up. Um but some of the history there, just you know, just so li listeners understand, you know, where BBS is, where that all started. These were bulletin board services run out of people's homes. They became interactive. Uh, they weren't necessarily part of the internet. 
you mentioned FidoNet. A lot of people aren't even aware of what FidoNet is, and that was a free network. It's I think it's still alive. I haven't investigated. <laughs> I haven't needed but it. But I think it's still out there. What's that? You I, ha- I haven't needed it for a long time. Yeah, I haven't needed it for a very long time. But uh, it's still, I think it might still be out there. And it was just basically a free network for people. And um, Well, and to- it was like, uh, it wasn't internet based. You, you jumped packets yep. from one BBS to another. It was pretty cool. And an email stuff. could take a day. To get it, to it, you. Was, it was, I know, but it was an, for its time, it was something completely unique. We had never seen, at least I had never seen anything oh, like it. Oh, it's fascinating. You know? Yeah. So, uh, and the idea, of course, the seminal ideas that came out of FidoNet, the internet also, but we have to remember where the internet really came from. And that's, you know, out of military and, uh, and other uh, military and academic, um, and the web emerged from from the internet, but not in the military. So I think that uh, it, it, it astonishes me. There is a great irony that the web came to life in a in, in, at CERN <laughs> in a physics <laughs> physics one of the most premier physics uh, laboratories in the world, right? So. At any rate, I, fo- I do find that ironic because we, it's like we created a new world with the web, right? I often so, refer to it as the Wild West in those yeah, days. Yeah, in a way. And, a frontier. You know, I'm sitting, it is a frontier. It is definitely a frontier because there are, the rules are really not rules. They're recommendations. <laughs> so, you know, people are like, well, you know, when we talk about standards, which actually this is a great segue into the emerging discussion as we're going along, you know, after the table-based layout saga and, and designers getting involved, we began to realize that there was, okay, there was some really good stuff we were doing and, and it was really good to see all of these things come together and then the user experience people and information architecture folks started coming into play and accessibility, you know, all of these things started coming into play around that Renaissance period, right around, began at, I would say, right around 1998, which is when the Web Standards Project under Jeffrey Zeldman and a variety of other good folks uh, emerged. Uh, And that was, it's interesting because I'd like to point out a piece of history here, which is that the Web Standards Project, the first, the first issue, the first main browser concern that that group went up against did not have to do with CSS. It had to do with the fact that there were two document object models in the Netscape and Internet Explorer versions of browsers Okay, at the time. So that was around the 4.0 IE4, IE3, IE4. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and Netscape corollary for its time. And that would probably be four as well. And, or if, yeah, it's hard to remember. <laughs> it is. <laughs> Short shelf, you know. <laughs> Certain things have to fall off when the new information comes on. <laughs> Definitely. But uh, that, that, that aside, it, it is kind of interesting because when we're talking about this DHTML phenomenon, which was actually really what I consider a foreshadowing of where we went. Uh, I guess that's really why I say it's, you know, I quip that it's HTML5. It's not really HTML5, but it is, and 
it is a foreshadowing of where we evolved, okay? And that was where the argument was over because we couldn't get our DHTML, you know, our cool interactions there or our animations or whatever we were trying to do with dynamic HTML um, to work equally between Netscape and IE. In this case, IE had implemented the, the spec standard, believe it or not, uh, of, of the div, which was, of course, the div element, which became incredibly important in just about everything we do, right? Yep. And uh, versus the, the uh, uh, what was the element in Netscape? I can't even remember. I My don't remember was, either. Who's showing? Um, this is terrible. I used to know this stuff like, <laughs> well, it's an obsolete element. So <laughs> it'll come to me in a minute. Anyway, so that the two elements, the element was non-standard in Netscape. And layer. therefore, layer. they and the DOM, what's, layer, yes, layer. Good Lord, how could I forget that? Well, the reason I could forget that is because it's a ridiculous thing to name an element. Because <laughs> think about it, think about all the, okay, so layer, think about all the meanings of layer to a designer. Yes. Think about all the different meanings of layer to a computer scientist. Put the two together and you have so many meanings of layer that it becomes ridiculously confusing. A div, is a division, period. Right. A it just makes sense. A layer doesn't make sense. So I think I, I know what they were trying to imply, right? But it, it was too discordant. Well, and, and that argument and the lessons that came out of it is what shaped the, the kind of standards development moving forward. Absolutely. That idea of semantics. This is exactly what I am bringing us to. And, you know, it's so great because you were right there at this point. I think you were coming into your own right at this point, right? This is the beginning of that renaissance, really, where we began to see, okay, we as designers and developers, uh, as, as we are the actual customer, you know, we're talking all about the customers as being the third party down the road. Before we can even serve those individuals, we got to take care of business here and business, you know, for the de developers and designers is right now at that point in history was a big mess, much more than it is today. And it's still a mess and it's always going to be a mess uh, because it is in a state of constant flux and that's okay. We can deal with change as long as we're adaptive. Um, and we did adapt and that's part of the lesson, I think. So, when I look at my own career in relation to all of this infrastructure, it, it's pretty interesting because I came into it in my, you came into it in your teen years and I came into it, let's see, in 93, gosh, you know, I was pretty young and it was, it, it, I really have been in IT since the, the late eighties. So that, that's a long time, but I came into the web and I watched it, um, you know, I came into it at, in its text-based form, right? So I was, you know, off of a, a off of a bash, <laughs> yep. you know, a connection there, or uh, eventually links, and then on up to Mosaic and all that. And the fascination for me, there was also something else that made me realize. Back to the evolution portion of uh, of a career on this on this historic framework. 
um, where I came to a point where I was actually observing live chats on, um, on early social networks like Genie or Prodigy or CompuServe or actually even going farther back, Q-Link, which was the Commodore and Amiga forum right. or live <laughs> chat forum, which some people might remember. Um, these were these were what we called walled gardens because they typically were run by a specific company and required a specific type of software or computer at the time to get into. Uh, the first time I saw a live international chat was on a 300-baud Hayes modem connected to a Commodore 64 on Q-Link. And I knew at that moment that something was going to be very, very different in the next years to unfold. I didn't know what, and I didn't know how, and I didn't know why, but I knew I wanted to be part of it. It was very exciting to me to see people from all around the world coming together and speaking in almost real time, you know, and, and just really something there that was just incredible to behold. Right. And that was, it was the first time in my life that I had seen that kind of uh, rapid fire collaboration on what could be. Yes. You know, it was, it was like, you know, Athens, like this just kind of brainstorming about how we move forward. And it was, yeah, it was thrilling to be even on the periphery of that. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it just, it, it it became the the life, the life juice. It became my life force because I saw that light at that point And I thought, wow, you know, this is a tool that we can use to really bring change so where did uh where, where did you apply this uh this excitement what, what was so, your first i suppose official job um well you know early on i'd already been doing public i'd already been before before the web i'd already been starting to um i was uh, doing like research on variety of uh disabilities and medical conditions and whatnot uh for work i had been doing um, in relation to disability support. And, um, I was doing that through St. John's university in New York on their servers. We were building out like uh, gopher based, uh, uh, documentation. So this got me very involved in the application of technology, um, as a public, as a publishing platform. Okay. So that's, you know, my background, I have a lot of writing and, creative writing mostly, but also, you know, I was trained, uh, as a, as a, in techno, uh, excuse me, as a technical writer and later as a, an, in, in media studies as a journalist, but with a, a very advanced, uh, progressive degree. Um, nevertheless, at that time, um, you know, it, it became clear that information and assistance to others was, was the road I was going to go on. So as the web began to emerge, uh, I first, I first began to work with, uh, with folks. Uh, and like you said, the collaborative nature of it, uh, was very interesting to me. So I got involved with some local folks here in Tucson, Arizona, where they were working on, a, which what is now a very successful, uh, a business model. They were one of the first people to build, I think they were the first, to be honest, 
to build a content management system. This is so early. It's like in 95, I think, where... So it's out of the Tucson Weekly, which is um, the weekly paper here, so the alternative news weekly that many cities around the U.S. have. Um, and they, uh, they created a, a, a group called DesertNet, and I began to work for DesertNet um, as uh, in the capacity of, of uh, a web designer. And, you know, and basically would work with, uh, with early clients and also within that group to work on the CMS project. Um, so we were doing a combination of web design and CMS development in Perl. I was going to ask if it was Perl. Yeah, it was Perl. <laughs> Well, there, I mean, what were the other options for, for CGI at there that point? There weren't. It was, that was it. You know, it was Pearl. That was, that was what we had. And we still have Pearl. And, you know, there are still people using Pearl to extremely solid, uh, you know, end results. So Pearl still has a place in, in the web. And, uh, you know, I'm not one to, to criticize it. Um, I, I, I have... Uh, enjoyed the emergence of other open source uh, languages, however, because they are <laughs> well, far you know, more they uh, were written, cogent. Yes, they were written for the web. Yeah, exactly. Not for not for Unix utilities. Well, and and Perl is so. I think Perl is so bizarrely articulate that um, you could write almost anything with it if you wanted to. Oh yeah. <laughs> you know, it's just you know, it's the. Pearl is the voice of many, many people. You know, it's just not, it's not just Larry. It was everybody, everybody who was involved and everybody who's involved in Pearl, a true open source project there. So, I mean, in terms of security, in terms of like core fundamentals when it comes to the Apache servers, which, you know, really do run the internet uh, still, I believe, uh, um, you know, we have a lot of security issues there and they're the strongest. And so Pearl was there and those security concerns are, you know, really, really solid, uh, solidly handled in that, in that area, whereas some of the web stuff is not so mature. So I think that's, you know, that's pretty interesting and a, and a so, sort of sidebar conversation because um, as I began to meet a lot of people in recent years that are still very much interested in web development with technologies that I had thought might have fallen by the wayside. But there, again, this renaissance, the use of the word renaissance is a really good one in the context of this conversation, I think. So at that point, I was beginning to do the web design and work on CMS. So I was beginning to get a taste of both the artistic and this and the uh, tech, technology involved uh, in 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 creating what would become now a publishing platform that is in use for almost all of the U.S. alternative weeklies, all of the New Times, uh, Phoenix New Times, all all of the New Times uh, publications. All so there's these are publications that are just. I don't know. Uh, so I'm sure that uh, in Ann Arbor, I'm, where do you live now, Brett? I'm in Minnesota, southeast. So you're in Minnesota. So what uh, do you have a, a regular alternative news weekly in the city <laughs> or town? I ran the one that existed in the 90s. It was called The Anal Intruder, uh, oh! specifically to piss off the administration at the high school. But I don't know that any exists anymore. <laughs> the Anal Intruder. That's just wrong. 
wrong in so many ways. Why am I laughing? It, it was fun to have them uh, put out the uh, the official statement that 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 was banned, and they had to say it in the uh, in That's the memo. Hilarious. Yes, it was a top put, secret reference. Yeah, and you yes, I'm sure. But either way, you 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 put it to them. <laughs> <laughs> Well played, my dear. Um, but I would imagine Ann Arbor, uh, college towns, would be big on this sort of thing anyway. So um, uh, so most people listening who have been in a major U.S. city are familiar with like New Times or similarly branded uh, news weeklies that are typically the alternative voice. In some cases, not anymore. The alternative voice has become you know, not necessarily the, uh, the rebel voice, if you will, or the true alternative voice. So at any rate, we did build the early system that now is that massive publishing system. Um, I'm long, long out of that, uh, that particular, uh, company, but it was an amazing start. Uh, I was also simultaneously working, um, for the Microsoft network. And at that time it was a closed, uh, proprietary walled platform. But the amazing part of what was going on there is that we were transitioning off of the proprietary platform and moving to the web. And in that process, we began to work with early versions of IE3, which is actually at that point like the MSN browser um, for behind the MSN uh, wall. Uh, at, at that time, which of course there's no wall anymore. Um, but there was at one time. And so at, at that point I became exposed to the first implementations of CSS in IE, which is where we got early implementations. And you were referring to the inline CSS early on. Yeah. Not only, not only was it all inline, but it was stuff like 12 point times new Roman <laughs> blue big <laughs> I mean, yep. just the most ridiculous things that we were doing we look back and we go oh my goodness what were we thinking it's so it's not semantic it, it it's not descriptive it's not meaningful if that needs to be changed it's it's a class name that just doesn't make do anything to help us and it's a technique of course the inline css which now is you know, it can be very useful in diagnostics or the occasional, I never said this, the occasional fix, I never <laughs> said that, um, where absolutely necessary. If you have to do that, I prefer it over bang important. Thank you very much. Um, but that that's a different discussion for a different day. <laughs> uh, at, at any rate, yeah, so... I think that um, I think that that was a very uh, incredible time because we were just, uh, you know, we were making up stuff as we went along. But you, it was you were also... making the mistakes that you would make a yes. career out of fixing. Abs. Oh God, thank you. <laughs> That's exactly it. That um, I'm going to have to think about that now, Brett. You may have just this. This may well have been more of a psychological uh, <laughs> visit than anything. <laughs> That's a breakthrough. You just helped me make a huge breakthrough. Oh, you're that's welcome. What it, that's what I was doing the whole time. I was fixing all the mistakes I made. <laughs> well, it's funny you should bring that up because 
one of the things that later on began to, to happen is I, I did a series on um, uh, crimes against web standards in which um, it was a keynote and uh, in which the first part was all my crimes. I confessed all my crimes. And then, of course, I went into the crimes of the tech technologists and the browser you know, the, the, the public crimes. And then I went, of course, into uh, the audience crimes. And people love confessing. <laughs> and It's and it was hugely so, important. It is incredible. Especially for an instructor. And it was so funny because that started, uh, this was, I think I did that keynote in Vancouver at, a, oh, yeah, uh, Web Directions North, the first one. And then... And then at South by Southwest that year, a couple of people went and uh, on, I, uh, I wasn't able to be there, but they went and asked me if they could put a confessional up. And they did <laughs> <laughs> put a confessional booth up at South by Southwest where people could come by and confess their standards uh, crimes and all the crimes they've done in their web development and design and uh, and and content and whatever web folk out there were doing, whatever crimes they feel they had committed. That's wonderful. <laughs> go confess, right? As so, a yeah, corollary, I'm... let me throw this in. Sure. My wife it. is a dog trainer, and okay. dog training now is going through the same kind of change. Like for centuries, this you know, like you basically you beat a dog to get it to do what you want. That's horrible. Well, it is, and only in recent years in the last maybe 10, 15 years, the idea of using actual behavioral psychology uh, and, and what became clicker training, positive reinforcement training, has, has been you know emerging, but it's heavily resisted. And people who do now espouse it, they have, they have to admit, if they're going to properly convince anyone else, they have to admit that when they started dog training, they were using prong collars and making those same mistakes. And that confession bridges, you know, it makes people say, okay, so that is a mistake and I can change it and I can start moving forward. And there's a whole new era to explore here. That's fascinating because I absolutely am in step with what you're saying. And I think that that's an example where uh, a particular uh, methodology that's been used is now adapting to the realities of the world as we understand it as a maturing and evolving species. And the people that are able to confess and are able to say, yeah, I did that and it was messed up. <laughs> now I want to do it better. Those are the people that continue to learn. Exactly. And continue to adapt. The people that stay rigid, I feel I feel sorry for them, and I feel that that's a very difficult position. Um, I know it's very hard for many people to make those adaptations for whatever the reasons. And I have great, I guess, sympathy. Not as much empathy because I'm adaptive, but I have some sympathy for that for the people that are struggling with that. Oh, it's, hard. In, it's hard to admit the, you've been doing it wrong. Yeah, in the context of this industry, let me be the first to say, you are absolutely right. I have spent a career working to get it right. Because, and people, and this goes now, this is a good segue into my book writing, because that people would often come to me and they're like, 35 books, what the hell were you thinking, Molly? 
And I'm like, I have never gotten it right. I've come pretty damn close, but 34, number 34 <laughs> was the da- the closest. And that was with somebody else. You know, it was my, it was my con- contextual idea, but it was based on his brilliance, right? It, it's like, I couldn't have gotten there without, without having, you know, so, so really I'm more of the contextual. I had the more of the publication. It's true of the last two books, both the ones with Dave Shea and then the one, the transcending CSS with Andy Clark. Both of those books were actually my constructions as an editor editorially um, because I had the publishing uh, experience that both of them did not have and the writing experience. So I was able to take, you know, ideas and work with with them in a collaborative way to and the publishers in a collaborative way to bring those ideas to fruition. Uh, in the case of the Zen of CSS design, that was a much more in-depth writing experience for me because I really we really broke down the work on that one. That was a half and half all the way um, in terms of the actual book. So um, I think you know it took me to the. 34th and 35th book before I even got close to correct. Did you feel that at the time you published each one, did you feel like you hadn't gotten there yet? Or was that at the time? I have never, people constantly say, oh, well, I love that book or your book helped me. And, you know, I hear it constantly. And I'm just, I think that, I think that, I did some great work and I put some great ideas out there. And if you were to go back into the books, you would have to, I, I would have to be the person to pull out those pieces <laughs> and find them because there's so much in there that simply is no longer technically relevant. But because I'm also socially concerned and I do not see the web as a technical platform. I see it primarily as a human one, right? Humans first all the way, uh, you know, back to this human and open ideology because of that, all my writing has been inundated and all my presentations and teaching has been inundated with, ethics and values and constantly reminding to the point where some people really get pissed off at me and say, shut up, just give me the code. Well, and I think that philosophy, though, I think I think the fact that you so publicly put that out there and had the strength to publish something you knew wasn't finished, you know, to put it out there and keep people moving forward, you really influenced at least my development career and my peers development career in the way that we looked at the web and that that you can definitely call it ethics this idea of the open web it was hugely influential and that's how i know you that when i look at your legacy that that injection of the human element into the development of a technology was extremely influential for me well, I'm really honored that you would say that. And I have to say, it's not, it didn't come from me. It, it came from other people in that environment. Tim Berners-Lee himself uh, saw and sees the web as, as a social construct as well. And he is a very socially conscious human. So I But he think didn't that, write 35 books. Uh, he but he he along with some <laughs> yeah. others invented the world wide web. <laughs> yes. So, you know. yes, granted, 
it's you know it isn't it isn't a matter of uh let's one up this it's, no but it's, it's a matter it's a of matter communicating of t- it and that's what you excelled at was well, was sharing you. it yes i am a great cheerleader if i feel that i i see an idea in the world that that is uplifting optimistic can really empower humanity for the what i perceive as the good which means taking care of the poor, of uh, you know, making sure that everybody has clean water, food, resources, and education, you know, things that we need in order to grow. That people during disasters like the issue in Nepal and India right now with the earthquake, that that we get all of the resources we can out to them as fast as possible. You know, that we respond. That we've created this this incredible communications. Uh, methodology, uh, you know, and I never want people to forget that even if you're building a, a purely um, uh, profit-oriented site, right? right? It doesn't mean you can't be humanitarian. You can still be making money and be doing something good with it too. That's awesome. You know, so I think, yeah, I, I, I just, I think that is, you did, you really, you really hit on it very well by, by, you know, uh, uh, by by kind of peeling back and articulating something that I hadn't well articulated about myself in my own evolution, and then and that is the fact that that constant adaptation, for whatever reason, is what what has kept me in the industry, and there are a core group of people, uh, and I can't say there are more than. 20 of us. I don't know that there are more than 20 of us from the very, very early days, uh, except within the W3C itself, where there have been, you know, people since the beginning. But in terms of general web development uh, and, and leadership in the industry, the originals, I can only think of maybe, you know, 20 at best names that fit into the true graybeard you know, <laughs> ideology and time frame, right? Uh, and and that are still, and I mean, there are many more than 20. 20 that are still active is the point that I want to make, is that they are still adaptive. They have still made, you know, their careers somehow relevant in an industry that has changed so dramatically from that time where we were using the technology to access information, where the challenge was using the technology, not how to build the information, right? To a point where now now our challenge as developers and designers is how do we take all this data and information, which is in a constant state of real-time flow, and make that work? inside some framework, right? That yeah. is all of the, the ethical points that the open web, you know, embraces. Really not an easy job, <laughs> right. but a great aspiration. So before we pause the story and, and wait for the next episode, I want to ask you a, a specific question. Sure. You are, in my estimation, the most publicly visible of the women who were involved in this kind of core group. Um, how many, how, how would you view the gender split in the development of, of the web? 
it's really interesting because where I see, I know for a fact that from elders in the computer sciences and elders, elder women specifically in the industry, that their road was a lot harder than mine was uh, in relation to the gender bias. Uh, I, whether it's in part the time in which I am living uh, and that I'm in the United States where the society is, is adapting, uh, although, of course, we haven't come to the equal pay issue, but that's you know, a <laughs> different story for a different day uh, <laughs> as well. Um, but uh, I think uh, I didn't have it as hard. I am also a very uh, assertive human, and I, I kind of, you know, always put myself right up front in the class, you know, right in front of the teacher. I'm, I'm never shy about, you know, saying I want something or going after what I want. Um, so I think that that confidence or, or, you know, what looks like confidence, it, I don't know that it's really confidence, but it looks like confidence drive it's drive for sure. Yeah. Uh, combined with being in a different time made it an easier road for me. So the way I look at it now to answer the question more efficiently is to say that, uh, I don't think it's, I don't think it's easy. I think that that there is a definite gender bias. There is also, there are also racial biases and there are definitely economic biases, socioeconomic biases. Uh, I don't like any of those biases. I think that the web is, needs to be better at representing its diversity because it is very diverse and we need to start looking globally at, at the resources that we have in terms of humans. Okay, and that's not something that I see being done enough. Like, bring in uh, some of the the speakers that are working in Africa to build infrastructure there. Uh, bring in perspectives that we haven't heard. That that is what I'd like to see. Bring in the women from those environments. You may learn something. I may learn something that will blow my entire vision of what the web really is or what my work and my meaning is, you know? So I think right now it's beyond gender, I guess, is my answer. It is now to the level of all humans, all humans need to be recognized and acknowledged in, especially in a mass communications industry that is meant to be for all people. Excellent. You know? Yes. If all people, then all genders, no matter how many there are today. <laughs> you are a big thinker. And in regards to your, uh, it, I'll, I'll, I'll wax off for, for a moment here. Sure. You, the, the, tr the challenge that women faced all the way dating back to the beginning of your career actually started when their math teachers told them they weren't going to need math. That, that kind of uh, yeah. bias, like, it, it continued and I it's think oppression. it's getting better, but yes, it definitely is. It's, it's setting you up for failure and, and your kind of your drive and this call to incorporate all people and bring in the speakers from everywhere. It, it, it not only would blow people's minds, but in the process, uh, begin to shape the next era. Bingo. 
You are so spot on. And that is what we have to be doing because here's, here's a, good, a good thing to leave listeners with. Somebody said to me, when are we going to be done? <laughs> that I would be sad. Looked, I know. I looked at this individual. It was at a conference. And I looked at this individual and I said, I honestly don't understand that question. <laughs> you know? And they were like, well, will there ever become a time where I can just do my job and not have to learn anything new? And I said, I hope not. Well, when you're dead. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, the point is, is this is evolutionary technology and we should not be thinking in terms of done. Let it go. Keep it going. You know, we are building the matrix and beyond. Right. Absolutely. So, so get with the groove, people. It's got to move forward. And we have to be. That is the biggest challenge. If there's a message throughout all of the conversation I think it's the adaptation that we, it's not, it, uh, I'm upgrading Darwin. It's no longer survival of the fittest. It's survival of the most adaptive. Definitely. Well, next time we have you back, which will be soon, I hope, um, we're going to talk a little bit more about the meat of your career, the, uh, the center of it. Great. And, uh, and yeah, I'm very much looking forward to that. So much happened. Um, so much that affects us all right now. Um, and just so people know, you can be found at molly.com, mm -hmm. also on Twitter as molly.com spelled out. Yep. And, uh, and you're all over. If you search, uh, Molly on, or Molly Holschlag on Amazon, you'll see tons of work. And, uh, yeah. Is there anywhere else you want to mention? Um, I haven't been particularly productive because of circumstances that the public is mostly aware of. Um, and which we so, will discuss. Yeah, we will. Because uh, it's important and it, and it bears weight in other people's lives too. But uh, nevertheless, uh, I would say the best place really where I'm most active is between Twitter and Facebook right now with the occasional blog post uh, and sometimes a YouTube a video. But uh, nothing really uh, that I can point to as, uh, you know, uh, formalized work. I'm beginning to do some of that. It's just at the reemergence point for me. So I would say at molly.com on Twitter, you know, anybody who wants to get in touch with me or follow me at me, say something to me, just say, hey, and I love it. You know, I love the interaction. So that would be the best place, I think. Uh, uh, unlike everywhere else on uh, on Facebook, you are Molly, period, as in dot, whole schlag. Yes. Not not Molly.com, because that goes to some bizarre profile. Yeah, I don't know what that was about, but <laughs> you know how these things go. I do. At least I have the domain. <laughs> right. We'll, we'll talk about that. That should be on the list. for the, That's a very funny story. Anyway, Brett, this was great. That's, I, it was a pleasure talking to you, and this was both informative and inspiring. So thank you for being here. Thank you so much. This has been a delight. And, uh, and we'll have you back soon to continue the story. I look forward to it. All right. I'm, I'm at brettterpster.com, and uh, you can find me on Twitter as TTScoff. And that was episode 137 of Systematic, and we will see you again in a week. Thank you.